this morning, I want to talk on um, divisiveness and, and unity. Um, not the, the sermon I thought I would preach on the first thing, um, getting back, um, but the Lord really put it on my heart as I was just asking Him what He wants, to, what he wants me to speak on this morning. Um, now, Philippe and Pat have done amazing jobs over the last couple of weeks of preaching on the topic of, of, of unity and community in the church, and that's been unplanned. I don't know if you were talking to Pat about stuff, but as far as I'm aware, that's been un- entirely unplanned, and so God's clearly trying to say something to the church um, about this. Now, I also just want to be really clear that there's no sinister pact of people in the church that are busy causing disunity, as far as I'm aware of. Um, all these sermons on community and unity and things like that is not because we suspect there's a whole bunch of people causing division behind the scenes, and we're trying to crack down on it. That's, that's not what's going on here. Um, I think it's more a positive thing that the Lord's trying to build something in us. He's trying to form something in us, and because of the, the greater things and the good things that he has in store for his church. Now, at the start of the year, um, God spoke to us and told us that this would be the year of community, that he's going to teach us a whole bunch about community. Uh, so 2020, he kept talking to us about intimacy with him. Um, he spoke to us through the bridal paradigm. He spoke to us about the key of David. He spoke to us um, about, um, about being in the throne room and prioritizing worship and first love. He kept on hammering these points. And I don't know if some of you can remember, there was like a good three months but that was almost the only sermon you guys were hearing. It was just the same sermon over and over again about intimacy, 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 intimacy. This is the priority. This is the priority. And we shifted into um, 2021, and we felt like there was a, a, a shift there where the Lord was saying, okay, we've, we've, we've hammered this point of intimacy with Him, but He now wants to open up to us the idea of intimacy with others in a far more meaningful way. I was at a, a catch-up with someone at the start of the year. We were just having dinner together. And he had been a part of a church where they had seen the Lord move in some pretty exciting ways, um, some pretty spe- spectacular ways. And uh, he, he made this point, and he said to me in the, in, the, in the conversation, he said, you know, we experienced some incredible things. And he said, as we focused on the Lord and as we really pressed in to know Him and to enjoy Him and to del- delight in Him as a priority. But he said, but things took on a whole new level of experience of the glory of God when we started truly prioritizing intimacy with one another as well. And it just, it's like, you know, those moments when the Spirit speaks to you and it just drops into your own spirit and you just know that was God. That was a word from Him to you. And, um, and there was a whole bunch of dreams that the Lord gave us as well at the start of the year to do with it and different ways in which He spoke. But so throughout this year, God has been teaching us more and more about what real community in the kingdom looks like and why it matters. And so John 17 verse 21 is a verse um, we looked at at the, at the start of the year. And um, this is Jesus praying um, the evening before his crucifixion. He says, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The Lord gave me that verse at the the start of the year to, to do with this year. And you see there that unity is absolutely critical to our mission as Christians. Like it is, it is absolutely critical. Um, if the world is going to know that Jesus was sent as the Savior and as the Lord and, and, and God incarnate, then it's going to happen through a unified people. So when we think about this, when we work towards unity, it's not just, it's not just something that, like that, that we need for the sake of the battle. No, the battle in, very, in a very real way is the battle for unity. It's a fight to be a unified people. 
before God. And as we experience that, as we live in that, that's going to be what God uses to testify to the world that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Let me, let me show you this as well in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to verse uh, 13. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. And then verse 13, pay attention here. It says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So there are all these different gifts that the Holy Spirit has distributed amongst all of us here in the, in the, in the church. And here, uh, Paul mentions five of them. And he says that, that, that these gifts have been given so that we would be built up as God's people in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. So we're not unified. There's division all around the place. We don't get along naturally. There's differences in personalities. There's different levels of character. There's different giftings. There's different backgrounds. There's different experiences. All these sorts of things. But Paul is saying here that but the, 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 the goal is that we would all come together and the Spirit would be at work in His church and build us up into unity and the knowledge of God's Son. So this is something that we are intentionally working towards as God's people. And he says, so that, it says, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So if we want to experience the fullness that is available for us in Jesus Christ, Paul's saying, we need to be built up in unity. So when we cry out, God, we want more of your glory. God, we want to see more of your power. God, we want to see more souls being touched by your spirit. God, we want to see you made manifest. God, we want to have our lives transformed the way we get there, Paul is saying, is if we work together to build each other up in unity and in the knowledge of God's Son, that's how we're going to get there. And so unity is absolutely critical for our mission here on the earth. Now, of course, we as the church, um, we're not doing too great at this. I wouldn't say, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that we're, we're, we're getting a star on our chart. For how we're going with unity at the moment. I, I um, had a look online and apparently there are over 40,000 different Christian denominations on the earth. It doesn't sound right, does it? That's what the stats were saying, over 40,000 different Christian denominations on the earth. Now, some of those might be like, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, they're in different countries. Of course, like maybe they're going to, that makes sense. They're going to be a different denomination or, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the point of doctrine that they're, that they're separating on is really, really hard to get along with if you're disagreeing on that point of doctrine. I don't know. But I highly doubt the 40,000 different denominations is, is justifiable before the Lord. We're not doing too, too great at this, at this unity thing. And that's just talking about different churches and the way that they relate to one another. You know, never mind our individual experiences in our, in, our relationship with, in our relationships with one another and how that unity is, is, is going. But I think the sad thing about it all, though, is that the church seems to have just become numb about it. You know, we, we've, we've got to this point where we sort of just, just tolerate it. It's like, oh, well, it's just what it is. We're just not a very unified bunch. and We've just become numb to it. Like, the, the sadness of it doesn't, doesn't get to us 
anymore. Maybe it's not even just the case that we're normal, we've, we've become tolerant to it. Maybe it's even the case that we, we celebrate it. You know, we're better than that church down, down, down the road. People really should be coming here. We celebrate our divisions from one another because it means at least for our pocket of people, we get to do church the way that we want to do church. You know, we get to be with the people that, that we really enjoy We, we, we celebrate it. But Jesus prayed that his church might be one. And that that oneness would be the testimony to the world that he is our savior. So how did we end up here 2,000 years later? It's almost like that, um, you know, that, you know that, that story of the frog that was put in the water and then and then uh, the water was just made hotter, just bit by bit by bit by bit. And he just happily chilled out in the, in the, in the pot, thinking that he was totally fine until eventually he got boiled. Because he didn't realize that the water was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. What if that's our situation right now? That we've become so split up as the church... And we've just, it's just rolled on, you know, just decade after decade, century after century, that we don't even realize how far gone we are and just in how much danger we are as a church. It also comes to mind as you think about society at the moment, you know, the stats say that in Australia alone, we have over 80,000 abortions performed every year. And that's on the conservative side of the estimates. You know, even just a hundred years ago in our country, there would have been a serious outcry over something like that. But now, it's openly celebrated. That we are a people that have the right over our own body, supposedly our own body, to, to do things like that. We celebrate it. How did, how did we end up here? Well, it didn't just happen overnight. It's the enemy slowly turning up that water, bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit. We don't even realize how far gone we are. I think in many ways, the disunity that exists in the church is very much like that. And so, I just want to highlight four points for us here this morning to do with just how serious this problem is and how much God's heart breaks over the divisiveness that exists within His body. First point I want to make is that divisiveness is a deviation from the gospel. So in the gospel... Through what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross, he takes a people that otherwise would be separated from one another and would be disunified, and he brings them together and creates a new bride out of them. He creates a new family out of them. He creates a new body out of them. He brings these people together. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to verse 29, we read, 
For those who are baptized into Christ have been clothed, clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So he's taken the Jew and the Greek. He's taken the male and the female. He's taken the slave and the free, and he's brought them all together and made one brand new family out of them. And not just any old family, these are the heirs of Abraham's promise, the ones that will rule the nations, the kingly people. He said, he's brought us all together and he's made us that incredible family. But then it's really interesting in Galatians where Paul talks about this, there was this situation that arose where at the church in Antioch, um, Paul, Paul talks here in the, in, the, in, the, in the letter of Galatians, he describes this event that, that took place in Antioch where um, Peter was there and um, Peter started acting in a way that really, really upset Paul because uh, Antioch was a place where they were ministering to uh, Gentile people, but there were these Jewish people that came along to visit and check out the work that was going on in in Antioch. And when the Jewish people arrived to come and have a look at the work that was going on in Antioch, Peter suddenly didn't want to hang out with the Gentile people anymore. You know, almost like, like that situation when you're on the school grounds and, you know, you're hanging out with someone and they're like totally cool to be with you, but then suddenly the cool kids come along and you're not cool enough to be with them anymore and they just pretend like they don't even know you. And that's pretty much the situation that's going on here. Like Peter feels an obligation towards the Jewish people. He's a Jewish people. He's been the apostle to the Jewish people. The Jewish people arrive in Antioch and suddenly Peter doesn't want to spend time with the Gentiles anymore. So he separates himself from them. And Paul was very upset about this. And he, he says in Galatians 3 verse 13 to verse 14, he says, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy. So Peter started doing it and other Jews started joining in as well. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14 he says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, are, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul calls them out and says, you're acting like a hypocrite because you're going about preaching this message that we've received freedom from the law and that we're all now made one in Jesus Christ. And then the moment that the Jews show up, you go straight back to your submission to the law, and you're acting as though we haven't been made one in Christ Jesus. He calls it out as hypocrisy, but not just that. He says that it's a deviation from the gospel. Now, typically when we think about deviation from the gospel, we think about the way that we preach the theory of atonement. Now, I've experienced quite a little bit of fury on the end of that way of thinking, but that's the way we tend to think. It's like if someone's going to deviate from the gospel, it's because they, they're going to preach the gospel wrong. Now, there is a way in which that can be a deviation from the gospel. I'm not just saying here, whatever gospel you want to preach, go for it. That's not what I'm saying. But here, Paul is talking about a, a different type of deviation from the gospel. And he's saying that it is when we as the church act in a way that is not unified, when we live in a way that is not unified, that is a deviation from the gospel because the gospel came to make us one came to make us one. So when we gossip about each other, when we refuse to pursue unity with one another, when we tolerate things in our midst that we know is hurting the body, 
Paul's saying that is a deviation from the gospel. It's, you could say, heretical behavior. So it's really important that we understand is that our failure to stand for unity in the church is a failure to stand for the gospel. Let's say that again. Our failure to stand for unity in the church is a failure to stand for the gospel. So that's the first point I wanted to make, is that divisiveness is a deviation from the gospel. The second point I wanted to make is that divisiveness is demonic. Now, Ephesians chapter 6. Who can tell me what the, what the, what the, the big, famous, well-known part of Ephesians 6 is all about? The armor of God. Exactly. And the armor of God is this part where Paul lays out all these various things that we need to have as believers in order to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. So he says that these, there are these principalities and these powers and these authorities at work in the spiritual realm against mankind to basically bring about death in, in, in mankind. And he says, so therefore take on your spiritual armor. Put these things on so that you might be able to resist the schemes of the enemy. Now, Ephesians 6, what, what, what we don't realize is that Ephesians, Ephesians 6 finds itself at the back end of a letter that Paul has been harping on about over and over again about unity. He spends so much of this letter talking about how we have been made one in Christ Jesus. He said how the dividing walls of hostility that once separated us from one another, these things have been brought down. And so he fleshes this out for us in a a beautiful way in Ephesians, and then he makes his way to Ephesians 6 and starts talking about that we need to resist the schemes of the enemy. Now, of course, there are many ways in our lives that we need to resist the schemes of the enemy. Many, many ways. There's your thought life. You've got to protect against him uh, creeping into your relationships and your family. There's, there's, there's many different ways we've got to protect ourselves against the schemes of the enemy. But if Paul's just spent so much of this letter talking about unity in the church, and then he makes his way to Ephesians 6 and warns us about the schemes of the enemy. Don't you think that at the very least he's probably talking about the fact that we need to be on guard against the divisive work of the enemy? That's because divisiveness is demonic. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 to verse 11 is even more obvious. He says, Anyone you forgive, I do too, for what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. We are not ignorant of his schemes. So he's saying that you guys forgive one another. I join in in the forgiveness. And the reason why we do this is because we don't want to give Satan an opportunity. If we tolerate divisiveness in our midst, what are we doing? We're giving Satan an opportunity. We know his schemes. He's looking for the gaps. He's looking for the breakdown within our love for one another so that he can creep in there and produce even more havoc. Now, I, um, I played uh, rugby union um, growing up and uh, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, there was quite a few times where I was on the, the losing side where we were losing pretty badly. And... Um, yeah, there was a while there that my cl the, the club team I played for, we were pretty much losing every week, and it wasn't, wasn't great. Um, but you know what was always one of the first indications that yeah, we weren't going to come back in this game? Was that 
when the enemy, the enemy, when the opposing team scored a try, you know, we always would get together for like a little huddle. And uh, you, would, you would talk about like what we need to do better and uh, you'd try and hype each other up a little bit or something like that. But I always knew that we were done for when we would gather in that huddle and the guys would start accusing one another. I don't know if you've been there when you played sport, but it's like, they would, they, they would start having a go at each other for like missing a tackle, for not showing up to the rock quick enough, or for throwing bad passes and pointing the finger at each other. And I just always knew when that started, there wasn't a way that we were going to make our way back into this game. And that's how the enemy works with us. Divide and conquer. If he can divide us, if he can make us turn on one another, we are just playing the ball right into his hands. It's easy for him. And so in that sense, divisiveness is demonic. When we tolerate divisiveness, we play right into the enemy's hands. The third point I want to make is that divisiveness will be judged by the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a situation where the believers weren't gathering in a unified way around the Lord's Supper. And so Lord's Supper for them was not like the Lord's Supper is for us. Um, in many ways, I long to go back to their expression of the Lord's Supper. We'll see what, what God has in store for us as a church. But for them, it was a meal. They would, they would gather together and they would feast. And at a point in the meal, they would break the bread and they would drink the cup and they would celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've reduced the meal into a centimeter by centimeter wrap and a little cup that we, little shot cup, um, and the Lord still blesses it, I'm sure. And He's still here in our, in our, in our, in our midst, and it's, and it's good. And, and I'm not in any way like undermining what the Lord is doing when we do gather in that way. But I'm pointing out that it's very different, the ways that we do it today and the way that, that, that they did it back then. And essentially, there was this group of believers that were rocking up to the Lord's Supper and eating up all the food before the poorer believers arrived to come and join in with the, with the Lord's Supper. And Paul is just furious about it because if you're hungry, eat at home before you come so at least you can leave some food for the poor believers when they, when they, when they show up. Um, but he's upset because the Lord's Supper is supposed to be this place where we actually put on display our community and put on display our fellowship. This shouldn't be the place where we actually divide from one another between the rich and the poor. But then he goes on to talk about how the Lord has acted against the church in judging them for this divisiveness in their midst. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, verse 32, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So this unworthy manner he's talking about here is this divisiveness that's in the church. Verse 28, Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink, and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. This is pretty serious. Paul's saying that some of the Corinthians have become really sick, and some of them have even died because of the way that they have tolerated divisiveness in their midst. Not just tolerated, they've been the ones driving this divisiveness in the, in the church. And so he says, on account of that, the Lord has been disciplining you. He's judged you now in this way to wake you up and see the sin for what it is so that you don't have to stand before him on the day of judgment and receive judgment for it 
for it then. Now, I experienced this in my own walk with the Lord in a pretty confronting way. Um, I've told the story here, here before. Um, when um, I was at Bible college, I was coming to the, towards the back end of my degree, and um, I was at a church, a large church, a um, couple thousand people there, and um, I, had, I had grown up in that church. The Lord had been really good to me there in so many ways, um, laid some really important foundations in my life there in that congregation. But as Bible college tends to unfortunately do to some people, it can puff them up a bit, and um, I'm not blaming the Bible college for it. It was entirely my fault, and... Um, but being in, being in that environment where you're always learning so much and growing and understanding, you know, you, it's, it's easy to start thinking that you know better than everyone else. And that was the trap that I fell into. And um, so this church that I was a part of, I I'm, I'm more and more started getting a bit of a chip on my shoulder about how things were being done, about what the preaching was like, about what, how the service was structured. And just started to feel a little bit like, you know, I was right, they were wrong, I knew better. And, um, and unfortunately, I started acting in some pretty divisive ways. I started talking to people about my frustrations with the leadership and started complaining about different stuff. Um, didn't always honor the, the, the requests of the pastors that were over me with things. And um, eventually, I got to the point where I was, you know what? Like, I'm leaving this church. I'm going somewhere else. And, you know, I left as a bit of a warrior of truth. You know, I'm going to stand up for what's right. And uh, left with a bit of a hoorah. And... Um, and found a new church that I wanted to be a part of that. And my mom was like, this is the right place to be. These people are preaching the gospel. This is the right way to act. This is the right way to do church. And, and, um, and planted myself in that, in, the, in that church. But like, I kept walking with the Lord. And I kept loving the Lord. And I kept spending time in His Word. But if I'm honest with you, a lot dried up for me for quite a few years. I wasn't experiencing the Spirit like I was ex- experiencing Him before. I didn't have that hunger and that yearning to see him move like I did before. I, I, I wasn't experiencing that first love passion where you just burn to know the Lord and burn to be with him. That was very much true of the years before, but that dried up for quite a few years after I left. Now, to cut a long story short, the Lord ended up doing amazing work in my heart and turning me around and waking me up and showing me how foolish I was acting. And um, quite a few years later, uh, quite a number of years later, the Lord told me one day that I needed to go back to that church for a conference that they were going, that, that they were having. And um, at this conference, he wanted me to go and apologize for the ways that I'd acted many years before and to reconcile with people. And so I went to this conference and, um, yeah, found people that I knew that I had wronged and apologized to them. And, and it was just a really blessed time. The Lord was, like, really ministering to me um, as, I, as I was there. And it was, uh, I think it was a three-day conference, and the final night, of this conference, we were standing in worship, and I mentioned the story before, some of you know it, but I was standing in worship, and it was like second song into the set, and um, it was like it was a really upbeat song, and suddenly, like totally unanticipated, these huge confetti guns go off, like like just confetti everywhere, like just explodes, and there's confetti everywhere, um, it's like in my hair, in my shirt, in my shoes, like, and um, and I'm standing there, like I was having this time of worship, like when the confetti went off, it scared the living daylights out of me because I was not expecting it. Um, but now there's this confetti everywhere and um, I'm standing there and smiling to myself because the, 
the, the, the guy that left that church, you know, all those, those years before, would have been fuming over that. Would have been absolutely fuming over confetti guns going off in church. Like, how, how dare we do something like that in the presence of the Lord? How dare we do a gimmick like that in church life? That would have been me. And I'm standing there sort of smiling to myself about this thing. And suddenly as I'm there, the presence of the Lord comes on me. And um, the Lord starts saying to me, I'm a God of patience and compassion. I'm a God of patience and compassion. And he says it over and over and over again. I'm a God of patience and compassion. And the more he says it, the more I experience his presence. Now, for me, I often experience the Lord as, as electricity. I can feel it. Um, we all encounter the Lord in different ways. Some of you see things, some of you hear things, some of you taste things, smell things. Um, a lot of those things I've never experienced, but I often feel him, like a, almost like an electricity or, or, or an energy. And in that moment, that started building in just increasing, increasing ways. I felt like I was plugged into a socket. And, um, and the more he said it, the more it built. And it got to the point where I said, I told the Lord he had to stop because it was getting too intense. And I said to him, Lord, you have to stop. It's, 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 it's getting too intense. And the moment I said it, it stopped. And he said to me, and you hurt my bride when she was sick. And I could have taken you out if I wanted to because I destroy those who destroy my temple. And I was a sobbing mess. Because for the first time, it really dawned on me what had happened when I left the church. I thought that I was leaving as this great warrior of truth. But in reality, Jesus was protecting his bride. And I was being judged. I was being disciplined. Now the Lord was gracious the entire way through. You know, he said, I could have taken you out if I wanted to. That's true. He has every right to judge me, just like he judged those Corinthians. Made some of them really ill, and some of them even died. He could have done that to me for hurting his bride. But he's so gracious to me the whole way through. Kept me in relationship with him. Didn't let me walk too far away. Taught me the lessons that I needed to learn so that I could, I could um, be humbled and uh, see things from, from his perspective. He's a God of patience and compassion. And, um, and so that's the, th the third point I want to make, is that we've got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful with how we treat his bride. We've got to be so careful about the things that we say about her. We've got to be so careful how we treat one another. His love for his bride is unlike anything we've ever seen or, or encountered before. And he would do anything to protect her. So, um, this is really important for us. Really, really important. And I think the point I just want to make on this is that <clears throat> one of the easy ways that we can fall into a trap with this is that when we start longing for things to be better, when we start longing for things to have more of God in it and to be more fruitful, it's really easy to let that discontentment fester into something that's gross. And I think that's really what happened with me in many ways at the heart of it. I've always, as long as I've been following the Lord, been obsessed with seeing God move in the fullness that He promised to move. There's one thing that I think the Lord has marked my life for, it's the pursuit of that. It's to see Him move in the ways that He has promised to move. And I longed for it, and I groaned for it, and I prayed for it. And, and that discontentment with wanting to see more 
became something gross because I wasn't watching my heart. And it's easy for us to do that here in church life as well. Like all of you have different gifts. So you're going to spot different things that are lacking here in the church. Some of you are incredibly gifted as teachers. And so you see, man, I wish, I wish that we could teach things more about this and cover these topics and disciple people in this way. And others of you are intercessors. You're like, oh, I feel like we need more prayer covering and we need to cover things in a better way in this way. Others of you are extremely gifted with hospitality and fellowship. And so you're seeing the holes. You're seeing the lack. And it is there. So then you hear from this pulpit all the time, we are not a perfect church. We know there are holes everywhere. We know that we are lacking in so many ways. But that's why you're here. Because you carry an anointing, you carry a gift, you carry something from the Holy Spirit to see those things and to bring about a change. But in the process, in the waiting, in the longing for things to be better, it's so easy for that discontentment to become something gross. I do believe that when I was at that church, God did show me things that weren't right about how things were being done. But instead of me getting a chip on my shoulder about it and thinking that I was better than them for now knowing these things, I should have wept. I should have interceded. I should have said, Lord, what do you want me to do and how can I love your bride and where she's at? Instead of acting divisive in my pride. So that's the third point. And the fourth one is that divisiveness cannot be tolerated. Titus chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 11 says, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. That's pretty serious. One strike, two strikes, three strikes, you're out. That's what Paul says. If someone is habitually acting in a way that is divisive, and the church goes and warns such a person to no longer do that, Paul says if they receive three warnings, that person must actually be removed from your midst. And it's because it's so dangerous. It's so destructive. It's, it's, it's like a poison that has to be urgently dealt with. Anyone's kids here ever swallowed poison? Hazel did. It was a terrifying experience. <laughs> she found the bleach in the washing room. And um, we came into the washing room and uh, into the in the laundry room. And she had got the bleach out and you could see it all over her shirt because the little pink shirt was going white. And so we knew it was the bleach. It was all over the floor but we had no idea how much she had actually swallowed. Now, as a parent, there are a few things more terrifying than that moment right there when you don't know how much your kid has taken in. This could be life-threatening. Um, life and so Jesse and I like, got on the phone as quickly as we possibly could. We called the hospital, called the ambulance, called the, um, what do you call it, the hotline for poisons and things like that. And they gave us a few instructions for... Um, what, what to watch for to make sure and to, if um, symptoms started showing up, we would race it to the hospital. Um, now, the, the stuff was in her mouth. It was evident that it was in her mouth, but we just didn't know how much she swallowed. Now, praise be to God that she was perfectly fine. It was in her mouth. It was all over her clothes. But as a parent in that moment, you're not going to be casual about it. 
You're not casual about poison like that. It has, it's something that you have to deal with urgently. And, and the, the point is that, I mean, like that divisiveness is like that poison. We can't be casual about it. We, we, we can't tolerate it. We can't be numb to divisiveness. Paul says here that it is so serious that after warning someone about it three times, you have to actually remove that person from your midst. And so I make these points here today because I want us to come out of that numbness, to come out of that tolerance that we have, and come out of that place of even celebrating division, and for us to see how much this actually hurts the heart of God. As Peter and Paul both said, in 1 first, in first Peter, Peter says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. In Colossians 3, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Above all, above it all, put on love. Above it all. I've got a quote here from Greg Boyd on this topic. I absolutely love what Greg has to say on this topic. I've quoted him here a few times to do with things like this. And he said, if love is to be placed above all, then there, is, there simply can't be any other command or doctrine or agenda that competes with it for top position. It must stand on top alone. Paul makes the same point, but even more emphatically when he tells us it doesn't matter how right we are, how spiritually gifted we are, how intelligent or wise we are, or even how much faith and service we display, if we aren't accompanied by love, they are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If we take this teaching seriously, it means that nothing, absolutely nothing matters if love isn't present, which means that love is the most important doctrine we can ever embrace, which means that our willingness to love is the most important criteria of orthodoxy, which means that if ever it is appropriate to label anything heresy, it is the failure to love. Above all, put on love. If someone else calls upon Jesus Christ as Lord, but they differ from you in their views of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, above all, put on love. If someone else calls Jesus Lord, but they differ with you in their view of the atonement, above all, put on love. If they differ with you in the spiritual gifts, above all, put on love. Above it all. If they differ with you in their views of politics, above all, put on love. If they differ with you on the vaccine, put on love. Maybe they love Anastasia Palaszczuk. Maybe they hate Anastasia Palaszczuk. Put on love. Above it all, this is what's going to bind us together in perfect unity. They call upon Jesus as Lord. Jesus is their God. Jesus is their Savior. And put on love. And fight for unity. Don't fight with them, but fight for unity. (laughs) 
And so this doesn't mean that we can't <coughs> share our opinions or have different opinions from each other. Of course you can. You can have different views on politics. You can have different views on baptism. You can have different views on the gifts. You can have different views on, on the vaccine. Feel free to talk to each other about it. Love is way stronger than difference of opinion. But be careful that you don't end up in foolish debates like Paul says. Because then you're going out of the boundaries of love. And you start arguing with one another in such a way that you know you're not being gentle and patient and kind anymore. Okay, yeah, they'll maybe stop talking about the vaccine. So it doesn't mean you can't have your opinions. It doesn't mean the doctrine doesn't matter. It's not wishy-washy. It's not just whatever goes, whatever feels right. That's not what we're saying. Doctrine has huge consequences for life. But love is the thing that we're supposed to put on above all. So if the music team can come on up. You'd all like to stand with me. This is so, so very important. I think it's for really good reason that God is putting this on our hearts so much to be reflecting on as a church community. Um, Pat's mentioned it the last couple of weeks and that there are just increasing pressures for us to become polarized as a society. And those pressures are totally creeping into the church. And we as God's people are just gonna have to stand and say that that's not gonna be us. We're not, we're not gonna let Satan polarize us. We're not gonna, once again, erect that dividing wall of hostility. That's not gonna happen here. Not only is it not going to happen in this church, we've got, to, we've got to stand for it to not happen across our various denominations. It's part of the reason why we've um, shifted our prayer meetings to being a weekly thing on a Sunday night now, these prayer and worship nights, because we felt the Lord really tell us we've got to be more intentional about this. We've got to prioritize this even more than what we have up until now to intentionally, regularly gather the people of God, irrespective of their views or their backgrounds or their beliefs, to be in the throne room together, worshiping Him and seeking His face. Do you know what the most amazing thing is? You know, you can be in the throne room with someone that is so on the different side of the spectrum to you when it comes to their theology and their ministry practice and politics and everything like that. And then God shows up and He shows no partiality. He just meets with both of you right there where you're at. And we need that this time. So let's just take a bit of time just to be in the presence of the Lord. Anything from today particularly ministered to your heart. Just take a bit of time just to chew on it. Let's talk to the Lord about it.
need to ask forgiveness for. Any relationships you need to work towards restoring. says that as, as far as it depends upon you live at peace with all men have you done everything that you can do to work towards peace maybe you need to pray and intercede for our country pray for the church so sorry, Lord, for how we have played a part in um, divisiveness within your church, Lord. Any way in which we have said things or done things that hasn't helped to work towards unity, Lord, we just want to ask you to forgive us. Lord, we are so sure that we played a part in that. We know that our hands are stained, that we haven't perfectly loved as we ought to love, and we just want to ask you to forgive us for that, Lord, and to give us clean hands. We pray, God, that you would help us to see just how much um, divisiveness does hurt your heart, Lord. Help us to, to know and understand how much it matters to you. I pray, God, that your spirit would, would help us to be a people that work towards that unity of faith. Lord, so we just surrender ourselves to you afresh and, and ask for your grace to be upon our lives, Lord, to bring about this change. We pray for your church, Lord, protect your church at this time. I pray, Lord, that you would give us more grace, Lord, to stand strong, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and not letting any of these the schemes of the enemy creep in. Lord, we're so grateful for what you've done in our lives, that you've brought us into this one family. And we just give you all the glory and honor for it in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone who agreed said, Amen.